We're in our series called, a long story short, um, thank you so much for joining us online. We're glad that you have joined us. We in, have been in the series for a few weeks, and we're just taking it quite slow over Genesis 1 and 2. We t- today we are Genesis chapter 3, and the reason that we're going so slow is because Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they are the framework to understand the whole rest of the scriptures. And we have to kind of take our time because it informs so much of this biblical worldview that's so important to us. Um, if you haven't received a uh, handout, just raise your hand so that we can get some to you. So the handouts are there specifically to help you so that you can communicate this to somebody and so that you truly know um, what this means. So we in, we've done creation. Now we're moving to um, our crisis, which is our second act. In Genesis 1 and 2, we specifically looked at um, the theistic and anthropological perspective. What does it say about God? What does it say about humanity? And we specifically saw that last week, humanity is dependent. We created in God's image. We're very close to God. Um, and number four, that we, we don't have a soul. We are a soul. And each of these dimensions are quite important for us as human beings to our identity and to what it means to be fully human in this world. And the two words that we took away from that sermon is privilege and responsibility. As beings created in the image of God, as kings and queens, as uh, priests, uh, a part of this nation, uh, a part of this world, as people that mediate for God in this world, there's a great privilege given to us, but great responsibility to do something with that. Christianity and faith is not something that you just come to church and you just believe these set of beliefs, but somehow being a Christian means living in a specific way, doing specific things, acting as mediators for God. Um, we have also a podcast uh, that, we, that we have, myself and Eddie, Robbie, and Berenice, um, and so you can listen to that as well. We go a little bit deeper in it. We're having such a great time with our podcast, and uh, if you want to check that out, you're more than welcome. Um, but today we're going to jump into the crisis Look at what this means. I'm a person that loves to have the big story, to kind of have the kind of 30,000 foot view. If I think of various things, I always like to zoom out and have the big picture in mind. What is the big picture? I like to see the principles at play with certain things. I like to, to see what is the, the stuff that move behind the scenes. And I found this um, tweet quite interesting a while ago um, from Kelly Oxford. Her seven-year-old daughter walked into the room and casually confirmed or asked, you have a backstory of why you're evil, right? Like, think about this. This young kid comes in and just randomly says, you have a backstory why you're evil, right? And then walks out. Now, all of us have to ask ourselves, we have a backstory. Like, the, the world that we're living in, there is a backstory where everything is kind of messed up. If we look around, we can say that the world is not getting better. For many years, for decades even, people believed that humanity just needed to overcome a science. No, we just had to overcome the, the physical world. We just have to figure out all the physical laws, and then we'll overcome. There is progress in the world, but today, we look back at this modernistic paradigm, and we're like, nah, we're not getting better. The world is not just merely progressing better and better where we're moving towards this utopia, even though we are still developing in certain realms, in other realms, we seem to be spiraling out of control. And so Genesis chapter 3, what we're going to talk about today, is basically the backstory. How did it all start? How did we end up where we are today? Um, so before we start and get into Genesis chapter 3, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you, Lord, and we pray that you'll be with us now. Help us to open Scripture, understand Genesis chapter 3, Lord, um, as this foundational, foundational axiomatic chapter, Lord, to give us this big perspective, this origin story, the kind of what, behi- what happens behind the scenes, Lord, about why there is sin and evil in this world and how it affects us. This is not a story out there for somebody else. This is our story. This is our struggle. This is what we wrestle with every single day. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us your Holy Spirit to understand the Scripture and to understand how it applies to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're in Genesis chapter 3. Now to get to Genesis chapter 3, we, we mentioned this when we were in Genesis chapter 1, talking about the theistic uh, perspective, talking about God. We kind of pitted God against Satan, the uh, good versus evil, light against darkness. But if you, have a, if you weren't there, I just want to quickly kind of refresh and just set the paradigm, because this is quite important for Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to speak about the devil today, and specifically as the serpent that comes in. But when you read the Bible, you realize that the Bible says very little actually about the serpent. In actual fact, even connected to sin, the Bible doesn't really say that he's to blame. Sin is in this world because of us. 
What's interesting to me is if you read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, there's very little about the devil. He comes in in Genesis chapter 3, but then Genesis chapter 4, the reason why uh, there's death is because of humanity. The reason why there's chaos in Genesis chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 is because of humanity, because of our rebellion. We are squarely to blame for the struggles that we have on this earth. But it didn't start with us. There was something that happened behind the scenes that influenced us to be rebels against God's kingdom. And we pick this up later on in, in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 12, but also in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14. These are the foundational texts, and then they kind of feed into Genesis chapter 3. So we're not going to go through all of those, but in Revelation chapter 12, it gives us a big picture of who the devil is. He is the ancient serpent, and the ancient serpent is the accuser, the mudslinger. He's against God. He is jealous of God. He's the arch rebel of, uh, of the kingdom, and he is a merchant trading in death and violence. In, Gen in Isaiah chapter 14, we see what his motivation is. Why does he do this? Well, it's because he said in his heart, he will be like the Most High. He is jealous of God, and he wants to be like God. In Ezekiel chapter 28, it says that he was a created being. He was the guardian cherub. He was influential. He was created blameless. But then un unrighteousness was found in him, and he became the Satan, the accuser. Now, I want to spend a few moments once again just with Ezekiel chapter 28 because this is going to frame quite a bit of our discussion in Genesis chapter 3. And when you don't have this perspective, Genesis chapter 3 won't make that much sense. But what we're going to do today is just look at Genesis chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4 and how those relate and how the devil doesn't change his tactics. What the devil did with, with Adam, what devil does with Jesus, what, devil, what the devil did with his disciples, what the devil is going to do with you is exactly the same mode of operation. Operation, right? He's not going to change much, right? So I want to just um, look at this verse, chapter uh, 28, verse 16. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence, and in your midst, you sinned. So speaking about the devil as this, this being that was created blameless and perfect, but unrighteousness was found in him, and this unrighteousness led to, to sin, or this, this idea that he started to do something, he started to trade and peddle. Now, we've spoken about this before, so this, for many of you, would just be to highlight this again. I want to quote this, um, this theologian, Angel Rodriguez, where he speaks about this verse, and he says, the text, this is what we just read in Ezekiel chapter 28, the text depicts him as a merchant. So the, the ancient serpent in Genesis chapter 3 is depicted as an ancient merchant who in the context is trading or spreading or selling a spirit of rebellion. That's important to us. He is about to sell something to them and that all that he is selling is rebellion. When the devil comes to you in which way or form he comes to you, at the heart of all of those things is rebellion. He wants you to be a rebel. It suggests that others are listening to him. The root term of the term recula designates a person who walks about. So this is the merchant, right? And from there it was applied to the merchant who journeys from place to place selling or his or her goods a peddler. The passage in Ezekiel sees the cherub as actively involved in the spread of what he has considered to be his goods. The word recula is also related to the word rakil, which means to slander. If we apply the meaning to the context in Ezekiel chapter 28, then the text would be charging the cherub was slandering the Lord in many ways. That is to say, speaking badly, falsely, and maliciously against him. In doing that, he was filled with violence. So get this in your mind. When the devil was in, in, in Eden, when the devil was in heaven, his main work, before he got people to do the actions of sin, well, his main work was to spread lies about God to lead people to fall into the thing that he was selling, which is rebellion. That, was, that is what he's about. The Old Testament uses for the term Hamas usually translated as violence, primarily in the context of social and legal interaction. So when he says that your peddling led to violence, he is not saying that you were talking people into a frenzy to fight. No, no, he's saying you started off selling ideas of rebellion and that eventually started off the violence. But this violence is in the context of social and legal interaction, not just outright violence first, physical violence. Designating an inappropriate way of relating to others that violates their rights, and it involves the illegal appropriation of what belongs to God or to one's neighbor and is motivated by greed and hate and often making the use of physical violence and brutality. Such violence 
could result in murder. So it doesn't start off with murder, but res can result in that. Or it could be verbal, consisting in the humiliation of the victim through impudent self-aggrandizement, by influencing others to do the evil or by falsely accusing someone. In the case of false accusation, hate is its source. Now this isn't new information, but it's going to be very important when we get to Genesis. Right, so at the heart of the great controversy, the great controversy between good and evil, between God and Satan, is the false words about the character of God. This lie motivated and is driven by pride and the love for power. So at the end of the day, this is what we have. It's the power of love versus the love for power. That's what the enmity is about. So now let's get to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to break it up in these three sections. The conflict in Eden, the consequences of sin, and the coming of the conqueror. The conflict in Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, if you have your Bible. So it starts off Genesis chapter 2 with a man and his wife, both were both naked, Arom, and they were not ashamed. God creates this beautiful place, and we spend significant amount of time looking at what God did and how humanity fits into all of this. But God essentially creates this beautiful garden that is not fully developed, but gives them all the tools that is necessary. There's no evil. There's no, there's no bad. Everything is good. Everything is good. Everything is good. Everything is very good. God rests with him in the, uh, uh, on the Sabbath day. And so we end this creation story with this verse. And man and his wife were both naked. They were both vulnerable. They were both open with each other. There was no barriers. There was no separation with each other. And they were not ashamed. There was no shame. There was no, there was no impurity. There was nothing to be ashamed of. And then right after that, Moses inserts this. He says, now the serpent was more crafty. And he uses this play on words there, arom and arum. He says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. In the Hebrew, what, what Moses is doing is he's giving us a, a hint to say that one of the things that the, the serpent is going to be crafty about is the innocence that they have and the humanity who they are. He is a crafty being and he's going to prey on their innocence. They're in a place that is perfect and beautiful and everything is good towards them. Why would they be on, on the God? So we're going to look at how his craftiness is displayed. And it's displayed in three specific ways. Very easy to remember. He gets them to doubt with their heads, desire with their hearts, and disobey with their hands. He starts with the intellect, goes to the heart, to the passions, and then to the actions. Now, the way that he does this, the way that his craftiness is displayed, is not necessarily that he's just going to fo focus on the intellect, then he's going to go to the desires. He sometimes interweaves and intermingles these things. But these are the three domains that his craftiness will be seen. To doubt with our head, to desire with our heart, and to disobey with our hands. Now, I want you to see that generally when we think of sin, generally when we think of fallenness, generally when we categorize evil, we categorize it with the disobeying part. Oh, that was evil. We speak about actions. But it's not about the actions as much, even though that is evil, but it's as if Moses pulls the curtain away and says that there's something beyond the scene. You're looking at where the water comes out, but we want to go to the fountain, to the source of the fountain that brings the bad water. And so that's what we'll do here. So let's start with a doubt of with your head. Let's start with the intellect. So we start off, he said to the woman, after we now know that this being is a crafty being, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Now that phrase, did God actually say, the devil wants us to doubt the veracity of God's word. When he says, did God actually say, what is he saying to Eve? Mm, are you sure He's bringing doubt in her mind to say, you know what, did he actually say that? Can you see how sly the devil is that he doesn't outright, outright come to her and say God is wrong? He doesn't outrightly say that God is not uh, for your goodness. He doesn't outrightly come and say, hey, but you, you need to believe something else. No, no, he says, I just want to know. just want to see how he's peddling his ideas. Did God actually say? So the first one is he doubts the veracity of God's word. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Did God say that? God didn't say that either. She's adding to God's word. And there is already two very important things when we talk about God and his word. Is today, a lot of confusion about God's truth is because people doubt God's word or they add to God's word. Think about that. A lot of the theologies that we have today that are off is because people are either doubting God's word or because they are adding to God's word. 
She immediately, in her defense, wants to add to God's word. But the serpent said to the woman, you, shall, you will surely not die. Here immediately is the first lie. He didn't lie in the first instance. He kind of just used God's word, manipulated God's word, questioned God's word. But now he says to her, you shall surely not die. The devil wants us now to move to doubting God's truth. And then he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, you sh your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is at the heart of the thing. When he says, God knows you will be like God, he wants us to know that the devil wants us to doubt God's goodness. He starts off by saying, we, we need to doubt the veracity of God's word. That will lead to doubting God's truth that will eventually lead to doubting God's goodness. And that's at the heart of the thing. He wants to hook them with that to say, but God's goodness is not towards you. Now pause the story here. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Is there anything but goodness towards humanity that God gives? Every verse is just how God is pouring out His lavish love towards us, how His goodness is for, for us. There is no prohibitions for humanity, really, except one tree. God says, eat of everything, enjoy everything. He puts them in a garden called Eden, which literally means pleasure. God puts them in a place of pleasure. He gives them life. He gives them potential. He gives them everything they need to live a good life. And the devil's like, yeah, but is God good to, to you? Like, think about that. Think about that. Is God's goodness really towards you? Isn't that the lie that is told to us? Religious is prohibitive. Religious, God is trying to take stuff away from you. Live your best life. Go out and enjoy yourself. But somehow when you remove that framework, and that's what the devil wants to do, remove that framework of God as God, you will fall into meaninglessness. The point that the devil is trying to make here is say to them, but you can be God. Because the devil knows that, that the way that he can get them is by, by selling and peddling this lie that they are good enough to be God. Because he doesn't want the true worship to go to God himself. So now that they have started to doubt this, we see that the craftiness being displayed in their desires. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, just pause here once again. This is a perspective. This is a paradigm that is suddenly being given to her. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was there other trees that was good for food? Yes. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Was everything else not the delight to the eyes? Yeah. They lived in the most beautiful place. Everything was beautiful around them. And the tree was desired to make one wise. At that point, were they wise already? They had some form of wisdom to a degree, right? Now, wisdom is maturity. Wisdom is being able to apply knowledge and experience, put it together, right? So they weren't as wise as they could be. There was some point of development still, but that point of development would have, been, would have come in, the, in, in connection with God, not independent of God, but being dependent or interdependent on God and each other. The devil is selling an idea to say, to untether yourself from God, you can be God yourself. And suddenly this, this doubting made her perceive the same tree in a different way. Now suddenly she perceives this tree as good for food and delight to the eyes. And suddenly it can make her wise. What the devil has done, he's, he, he has not given her something that, that she didn't have. What he's doing is, is that he's taking licit desires, good things, and, and, and swaying her to use it for a bad thing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 gives us a framework to understand what is happening here. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. All sin, I want you to listen well, all sin falls under these three categories. Every little sin that you can think of in this world will fall under either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. Think about any sin and you'll be able to fit it into one of those categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and there was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, meaning to be like God, the pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate. David Allen writes about the lust of the flesh. He says, the lust of the flesh is everything that appeals to the carnal and physical appetite. Although natural body desires are not inherently evil, the need for food and drink and sexual fulfillment, the devil can use these licit desires, licit within their own limits, to enslave a man. Think about food. 
Food is something that we need. We've spoken about this last week that we don't, we don't have a soul. We are a soul. We are in a fish, meaning that our bodies is something that we need to exist. And so we need food to eat, right? But when you push that merely to eat, to eat, for desire, for pleasure, that becomes gluttony. So a good thing, eating good food, becomes a bad thing when that becomes the goal. When the framework is removed that God has put there. And so that's what the devil does. He removes the framework. So the lust, of the, the lust of the flesh is everything that appeals. So anything that could be good can also be bad if it's used wrong. Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is what Galatians says. The works of the flesh, not the lust of the flesh. But now uh, Paul is saying this is the works of the flesh. When you keep on falling into the lust of the flesh, eventually this is the result of the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now think about all of these things. For instance, the first one, sexual immorality. If there's sexual immorality, there's also sexual morality, right? Sex is a good thing. Sex is something that we can enjoy, but it's within the confines of marriage and marriage only, right? Impurity. Well, if there's impurity, there's also purity. There's also a pure way to live your life right? Sensuality is anything that the results to the senses. Now, we can enjoy beautiful things. We can listen to beautiful things. We can enjoy. Senses are given to us to enjoy and navigate this life. But if all that you live for is sensuality, you are somehow diminishing a part of who you are. Think about it. If all of you live for is sensuality to the detriment of your spirituality, you are not fully human, right? Idolatry, is the false worship of, a tr of God, right? It's the false way of worshiping something that should be directed towards God, right? Sorcery, the same thing. Enmity is, is this, this striving or this, this uh, problem between humanity because we want what we want and they want what they want and there's enmity between us. So the works of the flesh are evident. They become to see in every certain realm and domain in our lives, we can see this. Eugene Peterson in the message writes it really, really well. He says, this is a translation of that verse in Galatians. He says, it is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all of the time. So the Message Bible, if you, if you don't know what the Message Bible is, the Message Bible is a translation or trans, uh, uh, um, a paraphrase rather, a paraphrase of the Bible in modern vernacular. So what Eugene Peterson is basically doing, he's saying, this is what Galatians is saying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put it in a modern context. And so what he picks up here is that the lust of the flesh, or rather the works of the flesh, is essentially you just wanting your own way all the time. That's what it is. The lust of the flesh is you just wanting your way all the time. And this is what it results into. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Do we live in a world that that characterizes our world today? People just living for repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. Or a world where we are just, there's this accumulation of a mental and emotional baggage. Just so much stuff coming towards us. I recently watched this uh, uh, um, uh, kind of video um, from Yes Theory. They do these really interesting things. And the, the, one, of the, one of the guys that run the YouTube channel, he did this thing where he went into isolation for five days into a dark room where there's no stimulation, right? And he has, he's got ADHD, so he said he's gonna be, this is one of the hardest, difficult things that he'll ever do in his life. He went into this place, I think the place is in, somewhere in America, but there's this bunker that they have underground, right? And they give him food through this little specific thing and no light, he can go to the bathroom, there's a shower and everything, but everything is in darkness, there's no music, there's no nothing, it's just him and his thoughts for five days. And he came out, I said he didn't think that he would be able to do it. Eventually he says, you don't know what time it is, you don't know, like first, first day, slept 18 hours. He says he's never slept that well in his life before. He's never even known how to sleep because he's constantly busy, there's always stuff happening. After five days, he walks out there and he's like, wow, there's like, I've never had the clearest thoughts that I have now. Like, I've never been so in tune with myself, I've, right? Somehow, he said, and this is the profound thing about it, that he's, he's so aware of all the bombardment every day that he gets. He wasn't that aware of it. I mean, he was aware of it to some degree, but he wasn't aware of it as much after the five days. Why? Because now he's kind of had this detox with that. 
Do we even realize how much stuff is speaking to us and taking our attention, all this baggage? A frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. We're constantly just going, trying to grab happiness, just trying to seek it wherever we can. It's like a kid in a candy store, just trying to have the, the best things, having that hype on sugar. We live in this world where we're constantly seeking trinket gods and magic show religions, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied once, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved. We desperately want to belong, we desperately want to be loved, we desperately want to just be apart, but yet somehow our relationships never work out, somehow there's always a struggle, somehow we just keep on struggling and, and struggling and struggling. We have divided homes and divided lives. We have small-minded and lopsided pursuits. A vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. Ugly parodies of community. Does that seem like a bit like the world that we live in today? Does that maybe seem a little bit of the world that you live in today? Maybe your world? And the root of that, the root of this reality that has just been described is the works of the flesh that finds itself in the lust of the flesh. That's where it starts. That's where it originates. And it started off where the devil said to, the, to Adam and Eve, hey, I just want to share this idea with you. It started off with a doubt with their heads. Then he moved to the desires of the illicit things that God had given them. See, he doesn't come and give them something else. He only perverts the God had, what God had given them. The desires of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, the desires of the eyes describe someone who is captivated by an outward show of materialism. Maybe you say, well, the lust of the flesh, that's not really something for me. But maybe this is the lust of the eyes. How, how much do you fill your eyes? How much do you like to look? See a new car, must have it. See a new dress, must have it. See a position, must have it. Cars and dresses and positions are not in and of themselves sinful. And I want you to see this. Just like the lust of the flesh, that there's, Ill there's illicit desires that the, the devil has perverted to become illicit desires, the same with the lust of the eyes. It is not evil to, to want these things in and of themselves, but the inordinate desire to have what we, what we see is, is sinful. An inordinate desire to have anything contrary to God's will is sinful. A lot of it has to do with how, how happy we are with what we have. Where do you sit on this scale? Has the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes come into your life? How is it operational in your life? How, how aware are you of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes in your life? The pride of life, the third phrase, the pride of life, describes the arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency. We have already spoken that we as human beings, we are dependent creatures. We are created to be dependent on God, dependent on each other. But the pride of life says, no, 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 we can be self-sufficient. We don't need anybody. It expresses the desire for recognition, for applause, for status, and advantage in life. The phrase described the pride of life is what life can offer you. Everything from sensualism to self-indulgence to self-conceit, the ungodly gratification of fleshly appetites, mental satisfaction, egotistical arrogance, this is the pride of life. All false views, and once again, like, like the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all false views of pleasure, meaning that they are true right ways of pleasure, all false views of pleasure, all false views of position, all false views of superiority, this is the pride of life. In a sense, what, what we get from this verse or from these verses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is that there is sin, capital S, capital I, capital N, that leads to sins, meaning the actions that we do, the other things. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is the stuff that motivates and drives us towards the various sins that you commit and that I commit. The various things that you have done and said in, uh, this week and should have done and didn't do and all of these, all of the stuff that make you bring this a sinful baggage toward, towards the cross, all of that is motivated by capital S, capital I, capital N, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We all struggle with this. And essentially, at the heart of it, sin is a displaced love. Love that should be on God and should be on others, we displace on ourselves or other things. 
inordinately. It's not hate, but love. That's where our problem is. That's what we struggle with. And sometimes we displace love that should be on God and should be on other people, on ourselves, or sometimes too much on other people or too much on God because we just want to be loved. Because we just want to belong. Because somehow, if I can do that, if I can show people that I'm better, maybe they'll love me and care for me. So somehow, all of this centers on this idea of love. And so now, after he has gone to, to, to doubt with their heads and desire with their hearts, eventually it leads them to disobey with their hands. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Can you see how, 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 how bad and deceptive this is? Immediately, she drags her husband with her. Immediately, he's, he's brought in with her. Now, the consequences of sin. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were naked, so there's immediately a loss of innocence and purity. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, means that there's already a loss of righteousness and an introduction of works. We can fix this ourselves. We can do this ourselves. We don't need God to do this. We can fix it ourselves. What can we do? How can we? And so we try and fix it with leaves when only the skin can, can work, when only the blood can help. Immediately, instantly, Sin leads them to this kind of righteousness by works, this loss of innocence, this loss of purity. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Immediately there's separation. Separation that just goes bigger and bigger and bigger. Firstly between them and God, then eventually between them and each other. Eventually that separation is within their family. The next chapter, their two sons, the, the one son kills the other one. Separation with brother. And eventually, this just spirals and spirals. If you read Genesis, it doesn't take much before the whole, the whole world is in disarray. From Genesis 1 and 2, where there's beauty and there's, and there's goodness, to a place where there's death and destruction again because of the separation. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? I love this, that God is the one that calls out. Do you think that God didn't know what was going on? Like God has taken off God. Whoa, where's the, where, where are they? I wonder what happened. No, no, God is the one that comes towards them. Many false religion is that you need to go to God, go to God but, in, but in Christianity, God comes to us. We can already see the heart of God, the grace of God coming towards us. They were the rebels to the cause. They were the one that went against God, but yet God is the one that seeks for them. The Lord God called the man and said to him. Now, what's interesting about this is that if you look at the, all these verses, right, the word Lord God, the word Lord God, constantly it gives this idea of this powerful God of Genesis 1 and this very personal God in Genesis chapter 2. The, the word Lord, it's not capitalized there because I didn't type it properly, but in the original language, if you look in your Bibles, the Lord will be capitalized, which means it says Yahweh Elohim. So it introduces, sometimes it's God, you're right, God, the, the Lord God speaks about this idea of Yahweh Elohim, the personal God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Moses, the God of the Israelites, the God that knows us, I am who I am. He is the one that comes towards them. He's the one that steps towards them. It is not just this deity somewhere far away that, no, 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 it's a personal God that knows he was the one that formed Adam and breathed in the breath of life. He's the one that walked uh, Eve down the aisle towards Adam. He is the one that says it is not good for man to be alone. It is this God that comes to them when they messed up. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Into Edom, immediately there's this fear introduced. In the Bible, constantly when the divine uh, um, shows himself through, they call it theophanies, Right? Or when angels reveal themselves, they constantly have to say to humanity, don't be afraid. Because suddenly there's this fear that we have. And because I was naked, suddenly there's this acute awareness of our vulnerability, this loss of innocence. And I hid myself, hiding from God, hiding from each other. Isn't that what we do all the time? Running away, hiding ourselves behind these walls, behind these things, behind all of this stuff, so that we won't truly be seen who we truly are, because somebody sees who we truly are, they might not like what they see, and they'll leave us. And so if they hide from God, they wrap themselves. Isn't this the story of humanity? Isn't this the story of you and of me? We de desperately want to be loved, we desperately want to belong, but somehow stuff got messed up, and now we're hiding. And we know how vulnerable we are, we know how 
hurt we can be. We know how messed up we are. And so we use all of these things sometimes to buffer us. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Who brought this new to you? How have you eaten of the tree which I've commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. Suddenly the blame game starts. No, 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 God, it's not my fault. It's her fault. Now, if you read the Bible, Adam is the reason that we are in this predicament, not Eve. Because Adam knew what he was doing. Eve was deceived. Adam chose to choose her above God. So we are in Adam, right? Until we are in Jesus, the second Adam. But we are born in Adam. We are born in sin because of Adam. So he comes and says, oh, it's not my fault. Yeah, it is your fault. You chose. You know, knew what you were doing. But he immediately blames the woman. Don't we do this all the time? It wasn't my fault. It was them. Right? Even kids do this all the time. I can remember when I was uh, a few years ago, my, my niece was still young. She was probably like, I don't know, three or four. And my mom had this antique little chair, beautiful little small little chair, and she just perfectly fit in it. But my mom was very precious about this antique chair, and I didn't really care too much about it, unfortunately. I didn't think it was that special, and I didn't know why it was that special. Anyway, so when my mom wasn't looking, my niece would love to sit in it, and I would pick her up and like play around with it. And so this one Sunday, she came to me, and she's like, hey, can we go play with the chair? So her and myself went to the, to the room where the chair was in. We put her in, and I put on my camera, and it was such a funny video. I put, the, put my camera on, and I'm like playing it. And as I lift her up, I break the handle off. And, I, and I'm like, oh, man. And I put it down, and she's like, oh, it's broken. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said to her, hey, we have to be quiet about this. Like, and as I'm going, and, I, and my mom comes in. She's like, what happened? She's like, it was him. Like immediately, like without even thinking about it. Like, she was, it was him. It was his fault. Like immediately. I mean, she was two, three years old. How did she, like immediately blame? That's the game that we play. The blame game. Immediately, right? And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? So now he says, let me speak to you. Okay, you've done this, right? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. It wasn't me, it was the serpent's fault. And that's the point. He deceived her. Deceived her by doubting God's word, desiring uh, uh, bad things, or, or good things that, that he is perverted, and the disobeying, right? And I ate. So the consequences of sin. We've seen all of these things, but additional stuff is cursed environment, a physical death, slavery to sin, exile from pleasure. There is massive consequences. We are in this mess today because Adam chose to go against God. Because Eve was deceived, and he choose, chose to follow her in her deception. And many times we are in the mess that we are in, not because the devil made me do it, but because we choose the realities that we live. We'd like to, to, to pin it on the devil and be like, yeah, yeah. Or we'd like to pin it on psychology. Or we'd like to pin it on our environment. Now, psychology and environment and all of these things do have an effect on us. Don't get me wrong. But we love today to not call sin by its right name, but call it by psychology. Oh, this is the, the reason. You know, or environment, oh, it was his family, or it was this one. We like to have these outs, these various things, instead of saying sin is sin, and this is what's the reason for it. I've messed up because I'm a bad person, and I need to repent. So the coming of the conqueror, this is what the, the hope that is in this, in this chapter, because it can seem very, very uh, uh, bleak. But in this, in this chapter, there is hope that is given, once again, by God, the one that gives us our hope. Now, we mentioned this in the first, uh, first sermon in this, is that the, the, the Bible authors, especially Hebrew authors, it is not only what they say, but how they say it. Meaning, it is not necessarily the words that they use, but structures and uh, the words that they use to build certain structures. One of the ways that Hebrew authors like to work on is what we call a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure just comes from the Greek word chi, which means like an X. So generally what it means is that they, these things that kind of correlate with each other. For instance, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to, uh, 1 to 5, speaks about the serpent Eve, God is absent, the temptation to eat from the tree. If you read the, the end of that, from verse 22 to 24, you see that God is alone. There's forbidden to eat from the tree. So there's thematic links. Now, if you look at the chiastic structure in Genesis chapter 3, you'll see it moves generally to a middle point, and that middle point is the heart of the message. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that the, that the hope is found in the verses from chapter 14 and 15, where it says that, that there will be enmity, but that there will come a deliverer, a seed that will come that will squash the head of the serpent. Now, we know that that is Jesus, right? We, we, we don't need to like, do a lot of Bible studies. We know this is Jesus. Now, I want to take you to something very interesting. Matthew chapter 4, New Testament. 
right? We're moving from the first, Bible in the Old uh, first book in the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has not started his ministry. He has been working in his father's business. He's been living in, in, in um, Nazareth. But now he's about to start his ministry. And we get to Matthew chapter 4, and here it says, up uh, Matthew chapter 4, and in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being baptized, right? He's being baptized, and he comes out of the water. Ellen White writes this. He says, up coming out of the water, Jesus bowed in prayer on the riverbank, and knew an important era was opening before him. So Jesus is there, just been baptized, and there he's kneeling down, and he realizes he's about to start his ministry as the Messiah. He was now upon a wider stage entering on the conflict of his life. It's game on. Though he was the prince of peace, his coming must be of the unsheathing of a sword because it's war between good and evil. Now, once again, I just want to pause there and remind you of how the devil operates. He wants us to doubt with our heads, desire with our hearts, and disobey with our hands. Right? He wants to, he wants to what? Just doubt with our heads. Yeah? Then he wants, to, he wants us to desire with our hearts, and then he wants us to disobey with our, with our hands, right? Now let's say it again. He wants us to doubt with our heads, then he wants us to desire with our hearts and disobey with our hands. Now, in part of the doubting, he wants us to doubt the veracity of God's word, the doubt the God's truth, essentially to doubt God's goodness, right? So doubt with our heads, desire with our hearts, disobey with our hands. And at the doubting part, it's to doubt the word of God in order to doubt the, the, the goodness of God, right? And the way that he gets us to doubt, uh, the way that he gets us to lead, lead our desires is through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We've seen this in the story of Adam and Eve, right? This isn't new information. If you've been in the sermon, you would have gone through this. Now, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So remember, Jesus, this, this, this point where Jesus is being baptized is the beginning of his ministry. This is the beginning of his ministry as the Messiah. This is the beginning of his ministry as your Savior, as my Savior. Super important. Then, while this is happening, a voice from heaven, who is this that is speaking? Right? Jesus is there as the Son of God. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. So this is God the Father speaking. This is what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God, Jesus is there and He hears the voice. He hears the word of God. You are what? My beloved Son. Ellen White writes, Matthew continues, he says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God. What is, what is, what is that conditional clause, if? Is that not doubt with his head? If you are the Son of God. What did he just hear before he went into the desert? You are the Son of God. From who? From an angel? From an apparition? No, no, no. He heard it from God himself saying, you are my son. Just like Adam and Eve heard from God himself. Jesus hears that he is the son of God. He is on his divine mission. And the devil comes and the first thing the devil says to him, he says, if you are the son of God, bringing in the doubt, if you are the son of God, command these stones, that, uh, um, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So he wants us to doubt God's goodness. Ellen White writes, she says, the words from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, were still sounding in the ears of Satan. But he was determined to make Christ disbelieve this testimony. Let me tell you, if there's one thing the devil wants you to disbelieve, is that Jesus is the son of God and that you can be a son and, son and daughter of God. If the devil can do that, man, that's game over for you. The word of God was Christ's assurance of his divine mission. He had come to live as a man among men, and it was the word that declared his connection with heaven. It was Satan's purpose to cause him to doubt that word. Have we seen this before? Yeah, yeah, in Eden, in the wilderness, where he, doubt, where he gets Jesus, or he wants Jesus to doubt, is the same mirror image of Genesis chapter 3 when he's tempting Adam and Eve. When he tempted Adam and Eve, the first Adam, now he's going to use that same methodology to tempt the second Adam, Jesus. It's if Christ's confidence in God would be shaken, Satan knew that the victory in the whole controversy would be his. He could overcome Jesus. And then he said to him, command that these stones become loaves of bread. Right? Lust of the flesh. 
Jesus is hungry. 40 days. He hasn't eaten. How long have you gone without food? Right? Four hours. 40 hours. 40 hours you're ready to kill somebody. Right? I know some people very close to me who just won't be named. That gets very hangry. Right? And you get out of the way when they're hangry. Right? Jesus, 40 days. Would you be hungry? Jesus is not an angel. He is a human being that operates the same way that we do. He is hungry at this point. And the devil says, if you are the son of God, gets him to doubt with his head, and then he says, desire with your heart that uh, command these stones to be loaves of bread. Now, to eat bread, is that a bad thing? No, it's a very human thing. It's a good thing, right? So he uses licit desires, hunger, to eat something, and perverts it to say to the devil, display yourself, show yourself as the son of God by doing this, the lust of the flesh, right? But he answered, it is written, what, is, what does Jesus do? How does he defend? He goes back to the word of God. Essentially, at the heart of the great controversy is the devil wanting us to disbelieve the word of God. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to fight you on the same turf. I'm going to go back to the word of God. You want me to doubt God's word? I'm going to go back to God's word. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil's like, oh, okay, you want to use the word of God? Let me use the word of God. Right? Then the devil took him unto the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. Right? So now he's putting him and showing him all of these things. Right? Display, pride of life. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, constantly saying, doubting, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now he uses the Bible. He will command his angels concerning you, on, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So here we see that the devil can sometimes even use the Bible to get you to, to disbelieve God. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written. Can you see the key thing is that the, the Jesus knew the Bible. You can use the Bible that is not in line with the Bible. Do you understand that? If you use a Bible verse out of context, it's not biblical. You can, you can, the Bible can say anything that you want if you use verses just however you want. But Jesus knew the whole Bible. He was so steeped in what the Bible was actually saying. He knew contextually what the Bible was saying. And so he says, Jesus, again, it is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, said, hey, isn't that why you're here? Aren't you here to get all the kingdoms back? Isn't that your main mission? Here he shows him all of these things, right? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Finally, he reveals his cards and says, this is what it's all been about. Worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Now Anna White writes this, she says, With the terrible weight of the sins of the world upon him, Christ withstood the test of appetite upon the world, uh, the love of the world, and upon that the love of display which leads to presumption. These were the temptation that overcame Adam and Eve, and that so readily overcome us. And then she writes, Many look on this conflict between Christ and Satan as having no special bearing on their life. For them, it has little interest. It's just a story. It's just what happened to Jesus. But within the domain of every human heart, this controversy is repeated. So whether you are two, or whether you are 22, or whether you are 92, this will happen in your life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. To get you to doubt with your head, desire with your heart, and disobey with your hands. He did it with Adam and Eve. He did it with Jesus. And let me tell you, if he did it with them, he's definitely going to do it to you. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 sets up the story for the rest of the, uh, of the Bible, right? It sets up the story to show, but this is how the devil got humanity to trip up every single time. And the only way that we can be liberated from this is to trust God's word and to trust in Jesus. To say, we're going to trust this, this word. We're going to trust the written word in order to trust the living word. Because it's only in the living word that we are saved. Here Jesus comes, and what is so profound about this, what I love about the story so much, is that Jesus there, being baptized, comes up, goes to the, to, to, the, to, the, uh, to the banks, and he's praying, and he says, God, I know what I'm about to do. He's just heard that he is the son of God. And like Ellen White says, it's like the unsheathing of a sword, and he goes into the wilderness, and there he fights the devil, and the devil comes the way that he came to Adam and Eve. And so this is the first showdown between, the, between Jesus and the devil, 
This is the first time that they meet each other. And he thinks, I'm going to get him the way that I got Adam and Eve. And the way that, we, that humanity lost this world, the first thing is how Jesus shows him that he's going to redeem this world. The first battle, Jesus squares off with the devil. In the same way that he squared off with Adam and Eve, Jesus is victorious. And every single other victory is, is, is seen the way that Jesus fights against the devil. He's dependent on God. He relies on the word. He goes to, uh, as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our savior, and none of us can save ourselves, but he is also our example of how to live our lives today. We will struggle. We will be tempted. The devil will come to you to doubt, your, to doubt God's word, to doubt God's goodness. He's going to come and mess up with your desires. He's going to come and want you to, to, to disobey with your hands. That is a fact. But what is also a fact is that there is great power given to you through Jesus Christ. There is great salvation given to you through Jesus Christ. Just like God came and saw Adam and Eve in the garden, God sees you in your garden, in your wilderness, in your darkness, wherever you are. He sees you. He knows you. And no matter what your baggage is, He loves you. And He says, I want to save you. Because I have promised to save humanity from the get-go, from the moment that they messed up, I made the promise that the seed will come. And the seed had come. We don't believe this promise looking forward to the seed. We look back at the promise already given and the seed already come. Jesus has already died. He has already resurrected. We have already been given the Spirit. The, the reason that you are, are listening to this, the reason that you're receptive to this is already because the Spirit is working in you. Now, some of you might be struggling and say, but I'm not ready to make that commitment. Maybe there's some, some stuff that, you, that the devil is holding against you to say, you know, he's accusing you and saying, but you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not, all of these things. Give that over to God. Every day, every single day is a day of justification and a day of sanctification. A day where we have to say to God, please, God, save me today again. Forgive me for my sins. And Lord, help me to be better. Give me the power over the penalty of sin. Uh, give me the forgiveness over the penalty of sin. And give me the power over sin every single day. If we understand Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3, man, we can understand the rest of the Bible. That's the gospel in verity. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Everything springs from that and everything will go back to that. To a place where God created a life that is good for all of us. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you and we say thank you, Lord, that you're a good God that loves us and cares for us. Lord, we pray that we would see you for who you truly are, that you would take away this, this blindness that we have towards you, Lord, that we would truly see you as a God that is loving and caring, a God that's goodness is towards us. Lord, we have baggage. All of us have baggage. All of us have stuff that we have done and that we have said Lord, there are many things how we have become twisted and twisting creatures, Lord, but we pray for forgiveness today. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for our sins, for our many shortcomings, for the things that we did and the things that we didn't do, for the things that we said and the things that we didn't say, Lord, the sins of omission and the sins of commission, Lord. We also pray, Lord, that you would not only justify us, Lord, but that you would sanctify us, that you make us pure and holy and good people, Lord, your people. And Lord, that as you, pro, as you justify us every day and sanctify us every day, that you prepare us for the day that you will glorify us as well. And that we would go out and tell people of the good news that you are a good God that loves us so much. A God that is, that is the seeker in pursuit, seeking us, your people. Bless and keep us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.